few days ago, the Americans had their uh, presidential debate, and you can't see me, but I'm throwing up some air quotes. I decided that evening to dig into uh, TCM's Women Make Film documentary and actually watch one of the movies that they had talked about. It was a movie called Crane's Confectionery from Denmark. I regret nothing in terms of my uh, my life choices. Oh, there's no way that you made a wrong choice there, but but that's where you want to start? You want to start in the political spectrum? Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> I, too, I too chose to uh, avoid yeah. um, everything. I yeah. actually turned it on for 10 seconds and immediately thought, why am I doing this? Yep. And turned it off. And I think I actually watched uh, the movie that we're about to uh, discuss today oh. for a second time. Oh, okay. Well, that, that, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, but I guess I'll find out in uh, 20 minutes or so. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 244 of the Matinee Cast. Finally, we are back with 244. It is the movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Yes, we are back, baby, after six whole months without talking of... Oh, I'm, I'm so excited I'm getting tripping over my own intro. After six whole months... You want me to take over? No, you might, you might be well served to. After six whole months of talking about old film and looking back at a decade gone by, we are once again looking around us at the films that dot this absolute trash fire of a start to a whole new decade. The year may be shitty, but the films, I assure you, dear friends, are not. There have been some absolute gems in this year, and we must discuss them before we get too far down the road. So, while things might very well change once we flip the calendar over, I'm happy to report that we have a wonderful series of seven episodes of the classic matinee cast lined up to get us into 2021. However, I cannot do it alone. Never, ever alone. I am far too alone here in isolation to even contemplate doing this podcast alone. Not a chance. I need a co-pilot, someone to sit shotgun on this wintry drive. And for that, I have reached out to a man who I've been friends with for over 12 whole years now. Bob Turnbull is here. How are you, Bob Turnbull? That cannot be 12 years. It is. 2008 around now like september of 2008 you and i were uh you know drinking beverages in a public establishment back when we could do such things uh probably arguing i'm sure that uh, time flies man yikes um i miss those those low begotten days or whatever word i was trying to think of there uh yeah i miss seeing your face there dude so uh we'll uh we'll fix that soon thank you very much for for making me the uh the first person to, to come back to the classic Podcast, I, I would have it no version. other way, man. I do, I do miss uh, sitting down with you in the in the party room of my building and recording this. However, we we do still need to to keep safe if we want uh, to, you know, to to drink in person and to watch movies in person sometime in the near future. We have to be uh, vigilant in the present. But uh, we have an episode to get to, and I feel like we'll be talking for a while. So let's get into it. On episode two hundred forty-four, we will be discussing. I'm thinking of ending things. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. And we will learn more about Bob because this, once again, is Know Your Enemy. Get comfy, kids. This is going to take a minute. Bob is a multiple-time guest. He first appeared on a Hot Docs episode in 2010. We learned that the first film he ever saw in a theater was Sleeping Beauty. The last film he'd seen at the time was fine, totally fine. The worst film he's ever seen is something called Shark Attack Megalodon. The unseen classic or essential at the time was The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Time has gone on, so Bob has now seen it. 
the films that he wish he made, plural, and he does that a lot. So I'm just going to say that right now and get it out of the way. And we'll do so again. Oh, gosh, should have guessed. Are Airplane and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Bob Return on episode 32, we talked about source code. We learned the film he digs that nobody else does. And I should say here and now, I dig it, is Ocean's 12. The film everybody else likes that he doesn't is True Romance. The film to make him cry was Dear Zachary. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Anthony Edwards. And the film he was watching next is The Outlaw Josie Wales. Then on episode 83, we discussed Upstream Color. There's a film that I have a very different opinion of now. Uh, the film yeah. that made his love of film turn a corner is Raising Arizona. His first date movie with his wife is A Kiss Before Dying. His sick day movie is Magnolia. The film to leave him speechless, plural again, was At Any Price, Cafe de Flor, and Coldfish. And his epitaph would be So Many Social Engagements, So Little Time from Raising Arizona. On episode 130, we discussed a most violent year. We learned the film Bob really digs but never wants to see again is something called More to End a History. The film that genuinely freaked him out were Juwan and Dear Zachary for very, very, very different reasons. The films that always make him laugh are Anchorman, Airplane, and Raising Arizona. The the movie soundtrack that Bob likes best is either Soul Kitchen or and or only human on episode 198 we discussed the rider we learned that bob's snack of choice when he goes to the cinema back when he can go to the cinema diet cola of any sort the movie worlds that he would like to spend a day in are multiple uh either real genius animal house or everybody wants some if bob is feeling like going back to college or gentle breeze in a village only yesterday if he feels like going to japan I think right now you have a better chance of going to college, Mr. Turnbull. <laughs> Bob's good scene in a bad movie is the farmhouse shootout from Manhunter or any of the dance sequences in Sweet Charity. The most violent movie Bob has ever seen is something called The World of Kanako. The movie monologue Bob would like to deliver is the Mad as Hell speech from Network. Finally, on episode 222, we discussed High Life just last year. We learned that if Bob met a person who has never seen a movie before and he had to show them one he would show them 12 angry men the movie that best embodies his personality is corieta's afterlife i still have your copy of that by the way <laughs> the movie that he hated at first but eventually came around to enjoy was fanny and alexander the remake or adaptation that's better than its original is oceans 11 and if he could bring any dead artist back to life who would it be and why it was agnes varda because there was a sci-fi novel you loved that you wanted to see her adapt and I can't remember what novel it was. Oh, I think it was an Ursula K. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin uh, a novelette um, there we go. whose name escapes me right now. And but and she has also passed away. So it was like bringing two artists back to life, basically. Yes, nicely done. One one small one small correction there, just so uh, I don't get people ganging up on me. The movie with the one good scene that I hate was not Manhunter. It's Manhunt by John Woo. Ah, just so people, my bad. I don't like the Michael Mann film. And you know what? I'm actually staring at manhoods, but I figured I had made some sort of a typo because I do that. So, there we go. Okay. Manhunt. Done. Done and done. Now, if you are a longtime listener of the show, you may have heard something sound a little bit strange. And that is that I skipped entirely past one round of Know Your Enemy Questions. Do not adjust your set. I have managed to skirt Bob past one sequence, which I'm, if nothing else this year, I am proud to say I am finally correcting this longtime error. We are going to get back to that series of questions. The, uh, I believe that's the sixth series of questions that Bob has never answered for reasons that are too detailed to explain. Bob Turnbull, 
when you can go to a cinema, when things are safe to go to a cinema, where do you like to sit? Well, I have to sort of think back to, what was it, about a, a decade ago or, or so March, ago? Like man. back in March, February? March, March. go to the cinema? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so what, nine, eight, nine years. Yeah. Um, typically, I'm a edge-of-the-row kind of a guy. So if I'm walking into the theater, if it's empty, you know, uh, especially those theaters that are split, go down that main hallway and go up two or three rows and grab one on the edge. Um, keeps me away from other people, gives me more leg room, and you know, if nature happens to call, I can just dart out and still get, you know, almost a direct line of sight on, onto the screen. So I, I think that's that's the optimal viewing spot for me. You don't mind being a little bit over to the side, like? No, because it's it's you, with a screen that big, it doesn't affect things. You have to be really against the walls for to for me anyway to really kind of notice it. Right. Even if I'm up front, I typically adjust to the angles. And at some point, I don't really uh, don't really notice unless you're like that front row. No, uh, no, no. then that's that's what going. No, that, that that front those front rows in any theater those 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 rows that are like you know ten to twenty feet from the screen those are useless. I don't even really know why they. Well, I mean, I do know why they have those, and it rhymes with honey. I like I certainly like being on an aisle because, like you say, it's like it's an early, it's an easy in and an easy out if it's a if it's a really busy house then you know you might be getting up and down a few times before the movie begins certainly during a film festival that's great i mean it's sometimes it's hard to get well like I, i'm unlike you I, I usually like to dart into the film festival movies about like five minutes before they start which which, which is dangerous because they do uh, reserve the right to kind of stop you and, and do the uh the, the people waiting in line but i like then sneaking in grabbing something in the aisle you sit down and boom things start to me yep. that's a perfect attendance at a film festival movie. Now, the other thing i will say about sitting on an aisle is i am actually also a believer of sitting on the outside of the aisle because then you know you've got a very clear line of sight there are no heads in your way because you have the aisle yeah. between you and the next person absolutely sir it's assuming that you are a single man which i know is a very very scary proposition if you could go on a date with any movie character who would you choose my wife and I have talked about this a number of times, and she has her own list, which has uh, changed dramatically over the last few years. Um, so I was kind of going through this, and the, the first names that I went to were uh, Barbara Stanwyck, uh, Gloria Graham, Joan Blondell. But I was thinking of the actresses, right? Uh, and less so the characters. I mean, they all play interesting, different uh, characters that I would have loved to have met. I mean, you know, they're... <laughs> Uh, long dead now, but uh, most of them come from noir movies or melodramas or things where I, I'm not sure I necessarily want to sit down for a beer or, or have a meal <laughs> with you right off on our first kind of meeting. I mean, um, listen, hold on though. Like the, the the first meeting with those kind of characters always goes great. It's the second and third and fourth meeting. <laughs> <We're> true. true. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. Well, it's going to be the, the only one from that time period that really kind of jumped out at me as being potentially interesting to, uh, you know, again, sit down, have a couple of beers with was uh, Hildy Johnson from His Girl Friday, because that oh. would be just one rapid fire back and forth conversation, which I definitely could not keep up with. Uh, but that would be that would be a, a blast um, having a having a drink with Hildy. But I kind of came around to Maggie Cheung in uh, Olivia Assayas's Irma Vep because she plays Maggie Cheung. <laughs> she kind of plays herself. So you are all over the map the here, sir. What's that? I said you are all over the map on this answer. That That's always my intent. I want to cover a wide spectrum for you, Ryan. Congratulations. Um, her, her character in the movie is essentially her. Um, oh, but she comes across as very funny and natural and a little bit shy. Uh, absolutely gorgeous and adorable and just beautiful and cheekbones out to here. But also... 
uh, wonderfully talented and fearless. And it's just a really interesting set of characteristics that uh, the character in the movie, I have no idea if she's really like that. I'd like to think that. Um, I would love to uh, love to go on a date with. And, I, and my wife would give me thumbs up approval. <laughs> I finally saw this movie for the first time this year. It's one of those ones that had always been lingering on my list to see for the longest time. I'm, I'm a big believer in Asaias and, and you know, I, I have gaps in my Asaias know-how. Uh, so I had just seen this uh, just a few months ago, like since lockdown. Um, she is incredibly charming in this movie i you know it's deceiving because you see the images from this movie and you see her in that like latex cat suit and i guess you kind of get it in your head or at least i got it in my head that she's going to be far more edgy than she is like you don't realize that the cat suit is kind of part of her part in this crazy crazy film and how she's just kind of like got herself neck deep into something mm-hmm. um but yeah, yeah and the, the, the cat is also great um, so when it does show up, you're, you're fine with that, but you're right. I mean, it, it's, it's a different expectation of the character. And when you realize that she's different, um, for me, she just became that much more charming as well. That's a good answer, sir. And, and you thank you for, as you're reminding me that I still have more Asayas films that I need to watch while I'm still sequestered here in Midtown Purgatory. Um, not the, not the least of which his most recent one, uh, what, what is it? Wasp Network? Yeah, that's on uh, Netflix, I believe. It's on the Netflix, I, I just yeah. saw that a couple of months ago. Uh, you can interpret this any way you want. People have interpreted it various different ways. Bob Turnbull, what is the dirtiest movie you have ever seen? Yeah, that's that's a tough one, actually, because I did try and interpret a number of different ways. I mean, my first thought was, you know, Salo, 120 Days of Sodom, which is more, more gross and disgusting, although much better than I ever thought it was going to be. Uh, but I, I kind of want the the other direction and started thinking about movies like Gaspar Noé's Love, which I only saw 10 minutes of, uh, turned off because I hated the male character, might get back to someday, but Don't just the it. opening scene is like, oh, okay, it's that kind of movie, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, Boogie Nights is an obvious one just because of the, the topic it covers. You could look at a bunch of hammer horrors that are just happy to smear blood over scantily clad women. There's a, a version of Sleeping Beauty. It's not actually the story of Sleeping Beauty, but it's called Sleeping Beauty by Julia Leigh. It's, uh, it's kind of a movie set in a brothel, uh, and women, you know, kind of please men in a variety of different ways. It, that's simplifying it too much. Uh, but that and something like Sex and Lucia or Belle du Jour are sexy movies. But I kind of came down to uh, two Japanese ones. In the Realm of the Senses, which is complete unsimulated sex between the actor and actress, numerous times throughout the movie and uh mutually obsessive and very very unhealthy sexual relationship between the two of them and uh cian sono's cold fish which is brutal and bloody and has betrayal and adultery and sex and murder kind of at the same time in the same place uh and body parts and it's um boy it's a thing uh i kind of love it but it's it's uh a whirlwind of just dirty behavior. So I'm kind of going with cold fish. Okay. Like apparently when it played at fantastic fest in 2010, it was released as part of the bloody disgusting selects line. Well, there you go. So, and I mean, that's my case. And apparently like it was, it was at TIFF as well, apparently, or like it's got a, it was, it's yeah. It's got a TIFF uh, logo on its poster. I have not seen this film, um, nor have I seen in the realm of the senses. Realm of the senses, at least, I have heard of it. There's no other way to say this. There's a lot of times where I've seen 
a Japanese film where the sex gets weird. <laughs> you know, like God love them. They make some amazing movies, but it seems to be one of those things where you, you feel like you're just like two or three scenes away from things getting really, really strange. Now you've got me both curious and afraid of both of these movies. Um, cold, like, I mean, cold fish just seems like a lot, <laughs> really. I'm not skimming it's over the synopsis as we talk. It's the only movie I've ever gotten a, a pull quote from, and, and it was only on a, on a small local uh, film festival, Japanese film festival poster. But I, I think I called it fearless filmmaking because it, it really is not just the scenes that you, you're seeing, but the filmmaking itself, where he uses repeated motifs and music and just it just throws everything at it and uh cian sono is is kind of that director uh he seems like a, a bit off off kilter uh in real life too from what i've heard um but i think the, I, I don't want to say too much about japanese culture because I, I don't really know it that much but i think they have if not a more permissive attitude i don't want to say that but just a, a different way of looking at these things that well we should at least examine and talk and explore this topic as opposed to shutting it down and saying, nope, nope, that could never possibly happen. Yeah. Uh, which is more healthy. That is an exercise left to the reader. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, not only that, but the other thing is like, I haven't actually brought up this question too many times. Um, Cause there's, there's only a handful of people who've been on the podcast as many times as you have. Uh, but you know, the other thing about, you know, a dirty movie is, Dirty movies are far rarer these days than they used to be. Like cinema in general has become very, very chaste as sexuality in media has risen in other corners. You know, like they, they either don't have to or they don't want to. You know, you can make a decision as to which, whether it's a question of money or, you know, possible exposure. So I'm thinking, you know, if you're making a movie and like, like, like Cold Fish or like in the realm of the senses, which is much older, but if you're making a movie like Cold Fish and you want to go there, it's like, just go there. Like, go there full barrel. There is nothing that really and truly, there is nothing we haven't seen at this stage. So you might as well put it into a narrative context in a way that is something unique, something memorable, something that you can build a narrative around, because most of the other ways you see sex in media, there's not a narrative. So, you know, why not? You know, that, that's the, I guess that's that's the thing is if I'm Sian Soto and I'm, I'm creating this this film and I'm creating this script, I'm thinking in my head, why not? Well, yeah, I mean, his, his movie in that case is really more about power and control, and that can take so many different forms. Right? Oh, yeah. And that's, that's just one of them. So I think that's why he's like, like all right, let's explore this in every possible way. <laughs> and I, I think he does a pretty darn thorough job. I'm curious and afraid all at once. Bob Turnbull, what you is should. your... I <laughs> should be, yes. What is your favorite black and white movie? Well, you know, that's pretty much a good... 50% of cinematic history right there. So you're not really narrowing things down so much. But um, my temptation was just to go with, you know, two of the ones in my top 10, 12 Angry Men or eight and a half. Uh, but um, I'll take another one that's in my top 10, actually. It's the Night of the Hunter. There we go. Um, it, it's it's glorious. It's beautiful. You've seen it. Uh, I think you've seen it on the big screen. We may have seen it together. I can't remember. Yep. Uh, I've seen it numerous times, shown it to my wife and son several times. It's it's so beautiful. Um, it's also a little weird. Robert Mitchum goes for broke in many scenes. I think it just adds to the whole gothic um, mystery of, of of the piece, the uh, the traveling down the river scene, all the shadows, the lights turning on. Uh, I adore this movie. And it's, as many people have said, it's a damn shame he only directed the one. Um, but it's, uh, it is an all-time classic. 
It's a film I I have never uh, written a syllabus or I have never led a, a film series, but it is a film I would point to as mastery of technique because the story itself you could just tell that story straightforward and just grind out a little B movie and be done with the day. Like I, you know, I I wonder if the 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 hiccup that the studio had with the way Lawton turned it in wasn't the story itself, but how he chose to tell it. Because it's a good story. You know, there, there's no question that the studio balked at the script itself. They might have balked at how he decided to depict it and how he decided to frame it. And they weren't really into, you know, the, the notes of melodrama in it or the notes of noir in it or certainly the arty way that he comes at it but you're you're absolutely right for a piece of black and white filmmaking and black and white photography that is one like if if a person does not have that in their top five black and white movies i would say they need to see more movies yeah i mean it hits on all cylinders it brings in some of the poetic realism uh the almost dreamlike nature of it too is, is probably something the studio just didn't understand i'm assuming um not a mainstream film although like you said the story it is a good story, but the way it plays out potentially is not mainstream. And I don't mean that as a diss in any way, but it, it doesn't, you know, I think there'll be a lot of people going, I, I didn't fully understand why that happened, or they made these little jumps of assumptions. Uh, it remind me a, a lot in some ways of uh, another one of my favorite Japanese directors, Seijin Suzuki, who got straightforward scripts, B-movie scripts, and did really, really different, interesting things with them, which made the movies that much more fun and memorable. Uh, and at the very least, and I have no idea if Lawton or, or Suzuki knew of each other, uh, but this reminds me that in some ways that this movie is so much better than the pieces uh, of, of just the script. And even the, the actors, too. As great as Mitchum is, the entire movie just elevates everything. Very nice. Finally, for now, Bob, what is a film you like, but nobody would really expect you to like it? I struggle with this one, too, actually, because I don't really know what people expect of me or, or, or even kind of what they think of me. Uh, and if you know, me, you know that I, I love. Yeah, you, you know that I love film and that I'm a little bit more of a generalist. I like to dabble in a lot of different areas. I've got my zones, of course, but I like to dabble in a lot of areas. So like Young Girls of Hushfall is one of my all time favorite films. And it's a. Uh, you know, it's a French musical that that's somewhat cheesy, although a little bit dark at times, too. Uh, and, you know, other musicals like Strictly Ballroom, you know, uh, a director that isn't overly loved that much these days. But, you know, as a first film, it's a lot of fun and it's great. Fanny and Alexander, you mentioned that before. That might not be the first movie somebody might think of. The five-hour version, by the way. Of course, the five-hour version. It may not be the first movie that you might think I love, but it is deeply, deeply resonates with me. It's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, or another musical that I just saw recently, Hamilton which you probably thought, ah, Bob's going to be one of those idiots who doesn't like it. I loved it. Uh, and it surprised me, too. I, I didn't expect to because I, I don't hate you know what musicals of that nature, but uh, I thought it was fantastic, assuming you think of that as a film. The one I settled on, because I, I can only have one choice, is uh, The Aristocrats. Because <laughs> it, it, is a, it is a filthy movie, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. not the joke itself, but all the improv in the middle typically ends up being quite disgusting. And I'm not typically into scatological humor i don't i don't hate it i don't shy away from it but it's not my zone but i love the movie so much because of how it dissects a comedian's approach to comedy how they look at improv and how you can just see very 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 different approaches you know the way carlin back when he was alive of course the way he approached the joke was oh it was so funny and so 
so on point with the way he approaches comedy. Uh, and there were some comedians that were, I, I thought, terrible. But overall, it is such a great view of how different people approach comedy. Um, it does get a little wearing at times with some of the repulsive um, um, joke points in it. Uh, but overall, it's a film that I deeply love. As you were kind of going through those, I was actually thinking to myself, like, you might have the widest palette of anybody I know, which is not to say that you are um, not critical of film, because you are. There's lots of films you dislike that I love and vice versa. Um, and it's not to say that... Yeah, yeah. You you are quite discriminating when it comes to things, but you're like you are open to so many different types. Like you're open to far more than I am, really and truly. There's 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 films that you go to, I'm like, good luck with that. <laughs> but um it it so that's the thing. I, I now realize that when it comes to you, that is a very difficult question because of the just wide array of cinema that you soak in quite happily. Well, there we go. Bob is now officially caught up. So when he comes back on next time, I'll have a whole new series of questions for him. I am not looking forward to writing those, by the way. But we have a movie to get to, a brand new movie after six whole months of talking about old movies. Come on back after this. We're going to get into the new slang. The new slang for episode 244 is I'm thinking of ending things. The floor creaks. The door squeaks. There's a field mouse a nibbling on a broom And I sit by myself Like a cobweb on a shelf By myself In a lonely room I'm Thinking of Ending Things was written and directed by Charlie Kaufman. It's based on the book by Ian Reid. It stars Jesse Buckley, Jesse Plemons, Tony Collette, and David Thewlis. We meet a young couple several weeks into their relationship. It's at the stage where new love can sometimes turn into passionate love, but in this situation, things are a little bit more tenuous. Our heroine, whose name we are never quite clear on, is, as the title suggests, thinking of ending things. But we take a drive. A long drive to meet his family, eat an awkward dinner, and then get right back in the car. Really, gang, that's the plot. That's the whole plot and nothing but the plot. Where Charlie Kaufman movies go, it's about as straightforward as it gets. However, things in a Charlie Kaufman movie are never actually straightforward. During one of the drives in the film, Jesse Plemons' character utters a reaction by simply stating, Wow. Our heroine, played by Jesse Buckley, points out, correctly, that wow is an all-purpose exclamation. It could mean that you love something or that there are no words to describe how rubbish something is. So pop quiz hotshot, Kaufman films usually merit a wow. Did you wow? And was it in the affirmative or in the rubbish diminutive? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the middle ground and kind of say it, it's, it's in that nether region of like, well, what does my reaction of wow to this movie mean? Well, you know what? I don't know. Um, watching it a second time, I got closer to the affirmative. Um, but the opinion stems more from my own personal reaction to just the nature of the movie, the, the, um, the cadence of it. Uh, like you said, those long car drives, which weren't as long as I thought they were the first time. Um, and a lot of it in darkness and a lot of repetition, which, again, you kind of expect to a certain extent in a Kaufman movie. It, it wasn't as, quote unquote, entertaining. It didn't really come together for me like Eternal Sunshine or being John Malkovich or even adaptation, you know, toward towards the end. On second viewing, 
uh, it's not that, you know, the pieces fell in. I was like, oh, that's what that meant. It, it was more of a whole. I could sort of watch it in one go and go, okay, I get it now. And I sort of get the reasons why the cadence are, is like this and why the characters are behaving this way. And I can just sort of sit back and try and, you know, relish the, the more subtle points or the little areas that he's kind of, you know, um, um, diving into. Uh, to kind of explore it can be tiring though it can be it's two hours and 15 minutes and that's fine but it feels like two hours and 15 minutes and i'll never say you know oh that movie needs uh, 15 minutes cut because who might say that but the movie felt long and i think that's partially because a lot of that repetition um but boy it uh it raises some interesting thoughts about how you spend a life Hmm. how you make your decisions, how you deal with regret, um, and where you end up and what kind of place you, you, you're, you're in and what you do with that. And, you know, it's just how you handle um, what's thrown at you in life and decide what to do with those things and then accept the decisions that you've made. I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack in any Kaufman movie, and this is the same thing. Um, it's just not one that I'm going to revisit a whole lot. To answer my own question, I did not wow. I think this this might be the first Kaufman movie where I did not wow. There were several times where I, huh, but I did not wow in this movie. Um, and I and to to lay my cards on the table, I I love Kaufman. I I love. All of the movies that he's had a hand in, um, I, I certainly, if I don't love them, I really, really, really like them. Um, I was I was reminding myself mm-hmm. of everything I've seen that he's done uh, recently, you know, like you mentioned Spotless Mind and Adaptation. Uh, adaptation, actually, I've read, I finally read The Orchid Thief, that adaptation is at the center of that story. Oh, yeah. And oh my God, is there no story in that book? I, I totally understand why he had trouble adapting it. Um, you know, but even, even things like um, Confessions of a Dangerous mind that george clooney directed back in the early part of the century um though and and more recently anomalisa we haven't even brought up synecdoche new york which i contend is by far his weirdest movie um those are all movies and, and his, his deepest too i mean synecdoche oh, yeah. you can have an entire uh, course on that movie it's still a movie that i i find myself thinking about and going back to as unhappy as a movie as that is um it's Boy, is that a thing. That is an amazing, uh, that is a wow. Top yeah, that's a wow. wow. This movie was more of a huh for me. It's it's not a bad movie. It's a movie that I would have a really hard time recommending. Like I would have to do a whole lot of qualifying questions before I point somebody towards I, I'm thinking of ending things. But I certainly appreciated my time with it. I mean, I've got to give this film credit for the fact that it puts us into these these really two car conversations, these long drive conversations. We never really want to get out of the car. You know what I mean? Like I've been in some car conversations where I really just want to get out. You know, not not even arguments, but just car conversations that are just really getting on my nerves or really I don't want to be part of and you're like I am on a highway. I can't just step out. I'm in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. These are not those kinds of conversations. These are conversations that are sometimes strange, sometimes a little edgy, sometimes a little testy, but they're always done knowing just where the line is. And we never actually want to get out of the car. And that's impressive. Um, there are, like any other Kaufman movies, there are some really lovely 
whimsical moments. I mean, there's a dance sequence late in this movie. There's a song. Uh, there, there's a house that seems to be designed right down to the wallpaper. Um, there are, you know, so when it like those are the moments that I can really see that we're playing in the Kaufman sandbox, but we never seem to break through the ceiling and get to that wow moment, which, you know, it's not bad. Like, you know, if the guy wants to play something in a different tempo, by, by all means, he's earned it after, you know, the better part of 20 years doing kooky things. It's, it's just, like you said, that first watch it's it's almost off-putting because you have no idea what you're in for. I'm fine with a movie that you know you have no idea what you're in for. Uh, because, you know, that, that is Kaufman to a certain extent. Although you know there are patterns. They're internal movies, right? I mean, I think every movie we've talked about is at least somewhat inside somebody's head, if not the entirety of it. Um, and I'm I'm fine with that. But yeah, this one just never had enough different tendrils to kind of explore. It seemed to really be going down this one kind of line in in different ways. Um, I, I might argue the point with you though about the, the car conversations. There were times it was like, would you just get there? <laughs> um, he was playing that line a bit because some of the conversation like, oh, this is just gonna get more awkward, and then it would shift, and then be like, oh no, they're they're fine. Ah, oh, it's awkward again. Oh, it's very silent. Oh, maybe they're having a fight. So he does go in different directions there and never all the way to one side. But it became really tiring both trips. I really wanted them to kind of wrap it up by the end. Hmm. Um, there was a lot of good stuff in there, but there was a lot of stuff that I felt, okay, okay, I, I, I think I've got part of the point of what you're doing here. And there's more things you want to bring. I just wish you'd bring them in a different way. Yeah. Now, the movie very squarely sits on the shoulders of Jesse Buckley, who this has been the year that I really, really discovered Jesse Buckley. She's been around for a while, but between um, Wild Rose, which she was in last year, which she had just a goddamn glorious performance um, later on this year. She, yeah, she, she's been in a whole bunch of things. Most recently, she was in a, a movie that uh, our mutual friend um, – Hillary Butler recommended to me called, I want to say it was called misbehavior. Yeah. Don't love it as much as she did, but there's a lot of good things there. They, it was just too much. It was overstuffed. I thought with too many characters, which diluted, I think certain, um, certain story points. But yeah, yeah Jesse Buckley was, was fantastic. In she's also, one. she was in the mini series of Chernobyl. She's in this series coming up uh, this oh. year of Fargo. Um, Jesse Buckley in this movie. I mean, she's our eyes. She's our ears. Like we're in her head when she's having these, little pep talks with herself that sometimes kind of her own internal monologue seems to drift out into the audible monologue. Um, and there's never a moment where she does not rise up to the challenge. It just every single time she wears it on her face, she wears it in her posture. You know, there's a lot of times where what she is looking at either doesn't make sense or what she is hearing doesn't add up. And she's never um, combative about it. You know, like we, we talked, we off the top of the show, we talked about how, you know, you and I made a decision to watch film instead of listening to what we knew was going to be an awful debate that could not be a more emblematic portrait of where we are as a society than two grown men yelling at each other for 90 minutes. She is, there's a lot of times where what she sees does not jive for her. And yet at no time does she ever really argumentatively push. Now, like she'll needle 
um, Jake, the, the Jesse Plemons character, she'll needle him once in a while, the way that, you know, relationships do, but she never pushes back with, when she meets like, you know, the, the girls at the, the ice cream stand or when she meets, um, Jake's parents or certainly just within herself. It's, it's a really fine line to walk along. Yeah. And, and she, she does it fantastically well. Um, it, you know, the, I found a few times her, her Scottish accent would come out, yeah, uh, that whether too. that was somewhat intentional or it, it didn't matter. Uh, it, it just became the way that she spoke. And I was completely fine with that. I, I think I've heard one or two people mention that. I was like, yeah, okay, fine, <laughs> whatever, get used to it. That's, that's her voice in this movie. Uh, and it, it fit perfectly well. Um, yeah, I, I thought she was fantastic. Uh, especially since apparently she's a master of all trades which is uh, pretty impressive that she's a physicist, film reviewer, painter, <laughs> uh, geneticist, I think. Uh, I know I've missed about five or six other ones, too. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, like she's in a Charlie Kaufman movie. So, like, really and truly, we should not be surprised. Uh, I, I was uh, I was a little bit happy to happy and and, you know, mildly bemused to hear her show off her film critic chops in the middle of the, all of this. Yeah. As you as you probably know, you know, looking into this a bit more, that is an actual Pauline Kael review that she recites. Sure, sounded like it about uh, a woman under the influence, the Cassavetes film, and it's a review that, short of the really high level uh, words and uh, uh, I don't want to say elitist uh, kind of view of things, but it, you know, for the flair of writing, uh, I could not do. I, I tend to kind of agree with, um, and I you know, I, I'm, I'm dissing John Cassavetes. Oh, you know what the hell am I thinking here? But it's not a movie I love as much as Gina Rowlands is amazing in it. So it's kind of funny that for me anyway, of like, okay, they're portraying her as this Pauline Kael type film critic that I, I don't think Charlie Kaufman is overly fond of about a movie where it's like, I kind of agree with her on that kind of separate from everything else in the movie. But it was one of those moments of like, Oh, okay, well that's, that's a little side thing. That's, that's interesting. The, the funny thing is that actually, um, when like the, when I, I like you, I watched this twice. Um, the first time I was just, uh, I don't think I was quite expecting it to, uh, wear me out as much as it did. So I, I really felt like there were bits that I missed and Pauline Kale would probably call that an absolute travesty because she notoriously only ever watched a movie once. And then, you know, she's like, I got it. Um, I watched it a second time. And when I watched the movie a second time, one of the things I noticed is that there is a book of Pauline Kale film criticism on the shelf yes. of, uh, of Jake's childhood bedroom, which, Sure. Okay. That was one of the things actually that, that threw me off about this movie is that if nothing else, Charlie Kaufman movies always have a very, very distinct voice. And I know, first of all, that this is a movie that's based on a book that so it's not his original screenplay as it usually is, even when he's adapting something else. Um, this was a movie that felt like it was 10 different voices coming at me at the same time through the same character. And that is one thing that would throw me from moment to moment, because anytime I felt like I was getting to know this character, she started to talk like somebody else. And I, I had to reacclimate. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's where we can start getting into the meat of the movie as to why that is right. Because she's, you know, uh, an amalgamation of a number of different people. Uh, I mean, you, you start the movie out and you think that it's, it's really her, it's her story that she's thinking of ending things with him. It, it gets flipped at some point where it's like, no, no, this is his story, but in, in a different way. And the title means something a little bit different. Right. Um, and if you go into, if you, 
you know, probably you have to kind of pause the movie when you're you're in his childhood room. You will notice all sorts of books and artifacts that have to do with pretty much every characteristic that she has. Uh, being a physicist, a geneticist, a painter, um, uh, the film critic, you'll see those things in her room. Uh, David Foster Wallace book is there. That comes up at some point. Um, the poem that she recites in the car is actually in a book that's in his room as well. So all of those things kind of show up. And then you, you start realizing, okay, this, this is all these different aspects of this woman that he's kind of pieced together that he kind of wished were, were things that could have happened. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I'm not giving away a spoiler, really. I think anything you read about this movie, you'll figure that out pretty quickly. Whether that means anything to you and whether you can actually kind of do something with that if, if the resolution of the movie actually works for you. I mean, that that's going to be the challenge for everybody is where this film inevitably goes or somebody somebody might say does not go. In a way, it's kind of an appropriate movie for the times that we're in because this is a very, very lonely movie. Everybody in this movie seems so lost in their own heads, so lost in their own space. We haven't even really brought up Jake's parents, Tony Collette and David Thewlis, that are both trying to be so pleasant to this woman who has come into their home, but both just so lost within themselves. And then on top of it, physically seem to flip from age to age to age, depending on the scene. This is a really, really lonely movie. L loneliness. Yeah. You're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, Kaufman's kind of plumbed those depths before, right? I think pretty much just about every movie he's made to a certain extent. Uh, Anomalisa really hits that. Synecdoche does as well. Um, pretty much all of them, right? Um, and it's interesting, too, as you kind of examine the parents and you sort of really realize that those two are Jake's own view of his parents and, and you know, the, the version he puts on his mom or his father is being these embarrassments for him, the way he kind of recoils from them. Uh, he kind of strips his dad down to this this person who is uncultured, yeah. you know, who, who doesn't understand different kinds of paintings. How can that show emotion if there's not a person in it uh, as mom <laughs> being the kind of you know laughing too much uh being a little bit too broad at times so it's then interesting to kind of reflect like okay that's how he saw his parents but in a number of different stages old young lonely uh bold you know all, all the different kind of facets it's a strange thing to see like like you say, like all of his other movies deal with loneliness in some way or another, but at the same time, those other movies find ways to let the outside world creep in. This was the first of his movies I feel like really seemed to be walling the outside world off and just building a, a, a sad world for itself that was nowhere near as beautiful as the outside world. You know, we, we open this movie with this really, really gorgeous, idyllic stroll through the snow and it's movie snow you know like like snow never really falls the way that it does in jesse buckley in the opening scene of this movie and you think to yourself well hey this is going to be charming this is going to you know even even though these couple is thinking of ending things we're going to get into something sweet and it's like no 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 we're going to collapse that idyllic hollywood world down and we're gonna get into this strange boy's bedroom where he just builds these little palaces in his brain that are still palaces that are only built for one person um it's it's that's the thing i i think if this movie had to come out any other time i probably would have run with it but like feeling those feelings right now it it was kind of just striking too close to the bone 
it's it's a hard go at times. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, just the title of that movie these days is kind of like, oh, great, thanks. Yeah, thanks <laughs> for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, but you're right. Like, I mean, yeah, at the start of the movie, she's got this bright red coat on and bright yellow scarf. And as you watch the movie, her clothing is changes colors. It, it, it's it's not that it totally goes to gray. It actually goes to this transition to kind of a drab orange and then actually towards blue at the end going through purple as well so it kind of goes through this this transition i think it goes backwards as well a few times but her, her coat is just kind of bright blue by the end you're like wait a minute i thought that was red um so it's it's that kind of transition but it is all again him looking at what um you know th- th- this female should be for him. Th- this this person he wanted to kind of validate his existence to a certain extent right he he needs or he wanted to have this person to kind of show that he was bright that he was smart that no matter what the topic whatever she was studying he could at least keep up to a certain extent and she could say yeah that's good and they could have these conversations uh, and that's what he pined for and that's why it's so very sad when you kind of see that it uh and understand that that's why it can be a little dreary and a little hard to get through. It's just like, this is just such a sad life for this guy uh, in his head. It's like that, you know, when, when she recites the poem and he says, it's the kind of poem that feels like it's about me, you know, like you can certainly see in that moment that he is projecting everything he's ever wanted in a partner to be the, to, to come from this one woman, whether that is what she wants to bring out of herself into the world or not he is assigning it on to her and you know maybe dooming the relationship and that is why she wants to end things it's an almost comically depressing poem isn't it there, yeah. there was so many lines i kind of quoted but there was one i wrote down and it was the weather a mobile like a broken limb while you keep getting older it's like <laughs> oh jesus <laughs> i think i wrote that line <laughs> once there, right? <laughs> there's there's been a handful of times over the last six months where I've thought this, but this is one of those times where I really, really thought this, man, I miss being able to sit in a dark room and, and watch something, something, a movie like this, I would have completely given myself over to in varsity eight or in, even in Lightbox five in just any dark room with other strangers and a big bright screen. Even the fact that this, this movie is anything but bright watching this at home is really really tough this movie just demands your attention for all of the subtle little tricks that it wants to play stuff like you know her her clothes changing um you know there's obvious tricks like the fact that the parents age flips and flips and flips and that you know you'll see stuff like her quoting things or whatever but then there's these other little subtle winks and nods that happen along the way not to mention the fact that the absolute pace of the movie and its rhythms are really really intimate and not designed for a bright living room with other distractions and other people around you my god do i miss going to a cinema I'm right there with you, dude. I mean, that, that's kind of exactly how I felt. And I think after seeing it the first time, I was, I, I think I was just texting with somebody and they said, oh, what'd you think of it? I was just like, ugh, I, 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 dreary. And, and I, I think afterwards I thought, well, part of that is because of the frustration of trying to actually see things. And it's not that my room was, you know, blinding with, with light, but it, no. it's not the same as a completely darkened theater. Uh, the second time I did watch it much later at night too, uh, and I had you know a lot of the lights off, so it was it was easier and better. 
but yeah, yeah, I, I want that cinematic experience and the kind of like, you know what? I'm in for the two hours and 15 minutes. I'm full bore. Let's go. It's just immersion, uh, right? It's, a, it's yeah, like it's, it's you are you are closing off. I've said this before. I mean, I, I've said this aloud several times. You are closing off the rest of the world. Just time and space is not happening for whatever it is, whether it's ninety minutes or an hour or two hours or however long you're in that dark room. You are committed to this story that's unfolding in front of you, and it's not. Like, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of movies that I love dearly that I've only ever seen from the comfort of my couch in the blinding light of day, but it is not the same. And this is one of those movies where the places it would take my brain, my brain didn't want to go there just because I was just, I, there were too many other things, even just in my eyeline, whether it was even just a cat walking by, you know, um, the, my movies that I have loved the most from year to year to year are movies that take my brain far out of the story, you know, because they bring up some interesting ideas and they just send me on these really, really wonderful journeys. And I could tell that this movie would have done that as subtle as it is. It would have done that. Uh, you know, it didn't have that same sort of muscle on my screen using my stereo from my couch. Yeah, I, I agree. And part of that, too, is, is the movie itself. I mean, I can't help but, you know, compare it to something like Eternal Sunshine, which, you know, I'm biased. It's one of my favorite movies. I, I just adore that film. But when I saw that film, I mean, just even like, a, for me, a bravura sequence, like when he flashes back to being a kid and he's under the table and then he gets, you know, goes down the sink and then he's underneath the blankets uh, with Kate Winslet and then he's a little boy again with the bicycle. Like all, all that stuff happens in a, I don't know, it's a five minute time span. I remember seeing that in a theater and just sitting there and just having a huge grin on my face. And I think I may have once or twice glanced around and like, are, are you people seeing this? Are you <laughs> feeling the same way about this movie? And it's not that I, I'm that character. It's not that it spoke to me that way. It's just like, wow, this is somebody diving into the memories and conflating them together and mixing them up and trying to hang on to them. It's just an amazing idea, wonderfully brought to the screen. And it's very different here. And it's not that this is an interesting exploration of somebody's you know, set of regrets and all that and going through their life and wishing and hoping and realizing and maybe even accepting at the end. But it was just very different. You know, just uh, maybe it's because it wasn't as exciting, maybe because I can let even less relate to it to a certain extent. But uh, it's a very different experience. Um, so I, I find it hard to criticize the movie specifically. I, I guess we can get into some of that. But it's more for me personally as an experience. It sounds like for you somewhat the same. It, it, it's not something that enveloped me the way I kind of hoped it would. Let's be honest. Both of us are coming in with a certain level of expectation because like if nothing else because it's charlie kaufman and because he is a guy who has taken us on some very very interesting wonderful unexpected journeys and this is definitely an unexpected journey but it's not i, I would never describe this one as a wonderful journey the joy seem to be missing this time that's the strangest thing is even in a movie like synecdoche new york which is really bleak um or anomalisa which we said before is really lonely there's still joy there and it felt like a lot of the joy here was missing that we were hanging it on this on this one woman who was trying her might to bring the joy back to this you know weirdo's life but just really couldn't do it 
because every time she tried, he would remind her of a reason why she was thinking of ending things. Yeah, it, it is not a joyful movie, and, and it's not meant to be. So, you know, it's not like Kaufman missed a beat or something like that. I don't think he was going for that at all. So, bravo, you yeah. certainly achieved that. Uh, but it, it doesn't necessarily make it a, uh, I don't necessarily, I don't want to just say fun experience, because I don't always want to just have fun watching a movie, but it, it certainly isn't entertaining. So you need to be kind of prepped for that. Yeah. Uh, but boy, it, it does explore some interesting corridors. And, and maybe that's another thing is that probably for the two of us, I mean, we're, we're both extraordinarily lucky and privileged to have found one person in this world who accepts us uh, for all of our many, many, many faults. And we're not that guy. And it must be extraordinarily lonely to feel that way at a much later stage in your life that you missed an opportunity or you missed many opportunities and, and you're regretting all of that. It, it is hard to not, not relate to that. I guess relate to that. I mean, I, I can try and understand that. I can be very empathetic to that, but it won't necessarily um, jibe with me. There is a lot in this movie that is, as is often the case in a Kaufman movie, that is unexplained. You know, that seems like it's weird for the sake of weird. And I'm thinking about everything from this basement in the farmhouse that at first, you know, Jake says, don't go down there. It's nothing. And then he goes down there and it's it's everything from, you know, his uniforms in the wash to a stack of paintings in the in the basically in the family room to um, this janitor who comes and goes out of the story for reasons that were never entirely clear to the fact that um, Jake's parents seem to change in age from moment to moment. Um, none of that is ever really and truly made clear. And again, that is something that Kaufman does. I go back to the 2008 Toronto International Film Festival, a film festival that you and I met at, and it might have even been the very day you and I met but I watched the premiere of Synecdoche, New York, which has a scene that includes an apartment on fire that is just perpetually on fire. And a woman in the Q&A actually stood up in the middle of the Winter Garden Theater and said to Charlie Kaufman, answering questions after his film, could you explain the fire? And Kaufman just broke into this cheeky little smile and said, no. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> He does that. And in this movie, he's doing it a lot. It, does that does that ever not work for you? Like, does that ever seem like it's weird for the sake of weird? I, I, I don't ever feel it's weird for the sake of weird. I, I think Kaufman always has a reason for what he's doing. Whether <laughs> I like the implementation of that is a separate question. Um, and, and do I always get all of them? No. Uh, even after you know, going through it twice, there, there's still some things that I, I'm not quite sure about. And again, we can get to some of those. Um, but part of me is fine with that because then I can think about it, ruminate on it. I can mull it over afterwards, sometimes go, oh, I wonder if it meant this. And even if I'm, you know, wrong, I'll put quotes around that, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm getting my own interpretation of it. And that can lead me to, I don't know, either interesting insights or, or just a different view. So I'm, I'm fine with that. But, it, you know, in this case, I've come up with my own version of the movie, uh, what I think it is. Some of it is, you know, after a while, it's kind of like, okay, well, this is the story, you know, that this is in his head kind of thing. It's some of the more subtle details that I, I'm not quite as sure why he chose 
these things, this Such specific as? poem, this specific oh. author, uh, you know, all those old VHS copies of like the thing and some eighties, I think horror movies that are in his room as well. That, okay. I'm, I'm not sure if he meant that to relate to the movie in a certain way. I think he probably meant every single item in that room to mean something. I'm sure I didn't get all of those, but I'm okay with that. I don't mind a little mystery even left over in a movie. Um, I'm fine with that. And then they dance. Then you bring in Oklahoma. Um, you can probably talk to this better than I, I think. I mean, I know you're in a household where musicals kind of, you know, exist in a much stronger way. I, I've never, I've heard most of the soundtrack of Oklahoma. I've never seen the play or, or the movie. I should rectify that one day. I will. Um, I know little bits and pieces of it, uh, but it, it, it kind of comes into play um, for sure as it weaves in the uh, the Robert Zemeckis film <laughs> that's within this film, uh, those characters, and, and really the end of this movie, too. Um, you know, they hear one of the songs right up front in the car. She turns it on, and it's Oklahoma song. And he says, oh, he, he, you know, he doesn't love musicals, but he knows a few, and he, and he rhymes off, like, about 20 of them. Yeah. Uh, but Oklahoma is his favorite, because, you know, yeah, he remembers the kids at the high school doing this year after year after year. And he'd see them come and go. And you're, you're thinking, what do you mean you see him come and go? Like, how long you're at high school, dude? <laughs> well, then you, you know, realize that he is the high school janitor. Uh, and it actually then flashes to him being the janitor. And, and the song, I don't think, even takes a break. It just has a, you know, a, a different loudness to it, I guess, as, as somebody's actually singing it. Uh, and then there's the, the, the final ballet sequence in the high school halls. That's very reminiscent. Uh, of the ballet dream sequence in in the play as well, so it, it kind of uses different pieces of that to kind of have that battle between him as this kind of creepy person, I guess, and the perfect guy that his dream girl, you know, will likely end up with, and and the battle he has with this. Um, so it's an interesting usage of Oklahoma. But what, what's what's your impression of that? It's a like I mean, it's a very very long walk to get there like we're we're in this interesting time for oklahoma because oklahoma was also used as a narrative device around this time last year with the television series watchmen who used um oklahoma as a jumping off point um partially because they also used the massacres of oklahoma in 1921 as a jumping off point for their entire story um but they you know the first episode was named after an oklahoma song this this use of Oklahoma is really, really strange because, I mean, Oklahoma as a story has, like many art, much American art of its time, has some racial weavings in it that aren't quite where they should be and we're you know at a reckoning for things like that so it's it's this thing where you look at something that appears to be wholesome you know oklahoma rogers and hammerstein like it's it's all of our moms can sing songs from it and the songs are so cheerful and we've heard them in you know when harry met sally and we've heard hugh jackman sing them and, and on and on and on and on and on you know it seems so lovely and so charming and yet you actually unspool it and there are some unsavory things within it that might be what he's going for in terms of this relationship and how he's projecting who he wants her to be onto her and who doesn't want to do that who doesn't want to 
take somebody and try to make, you know, try to bring out their best qualities. Well, maybe there's something wrong with that, you know, but it's bubbling under the surface the way that these unsavory things are bubbling underneath the lovely Rodgers and Hammerstein soundtrack. Um, I think the difficulty of it all, though, is that when we get to this ballet, it comes out of nowhere as much as something in a, in a Charlie Kaufman movie can come out of nowhere. You know, we have not seen anything that whimsical for two whole hours. We've seen some weird stuff and we've seen some charming things, including that, as I said, that, that opening shot of her in the snow. But we have never gone full on, um, you know, American in Paris ballet, which this really is. You know, it's that ballet sequence that usually drops into the middle of a Gene Kelly movie that furthers the love story along. And yet this one comes out of nowhere, ends up with a death, and then kind of skirts into this very, very strange ending. I enjoyed watching the dance and seeing things like the surrogates step in for them and then they step out. Um, and, and, you know, the older version comes in to make, you know, like, like make things difficult for his younger self. That's all really cool, but the execution of it seems so jarring that even two times in, I still couldn't really sink myself into. For me, I think that like the ending is, is somewhat him coming to this acceptance of of uh, of everything, and you can then decide whether he does actually consider you know ending things, uh, or he certainly is considering it, uh, whether he does or or doesn't, uh, and the movie to me leaves that a little bit unclear and we can kind of get into that as well but I, I think it does sort of bring that culmination of like he realizes that he he's kind of that bad guy he's not that hero he's the guy that the good guy actually kind of says you know what you, you should probably kill yourself hmm. um and he is that guy uh, and i think he kind of comes to that realization uh, like I, I don't know oklahoma that well but it's a an, an interesting thing to kind of weave into this. I mean, the first song, I was just looking through some of my notes here, the first song that plays in the car is about uh, the false optimism of a romance, right? And okay, well, that's yeah. <laughs> certainly how he, he maybe even kind of reflects back on, oh, this could have been a thing. I should have done something. Oh, I could have, I could have. And I think at the end going, well, no, it, it never was. She wasn't, she was somebody I just maybe saw. He may not have even talked to her. Um, you know, that that's kind of the impression you get towards the end. You know, like, I'm sure people can hear it in my voice. It's not a movie that I really love. It's not a movie that I dislike either, but it's it's just, I almost think it's it's almost too opaque. There's almost too much going on in this movie, and it wants me to do a lot more lifting than I'm really prepared to do at this stage of 2020. Um, it's not a bad thing and i mean this is a book and maybe it would work better as a book um i am kind of curious to read it now um but it, it's one of those things where as i said sometimes the math doesn't always add up and maybe it's just because the math is you know at a level that i'm not at right now this is the kind of movie that i think to myself i'm probably going to come back to this in five or ten years and be in a different place and see things i didn't see and feel things i different feel but right this moment this is not you know, th this movie about loneliness and this movie about woulda, coulda, shoulda is not what I want or need, you know, to, to, to get into this, you know, what is going to be a very dark and cold winter like we were seeing in this movie. Um, it's, it's not to say that it's bad. Like, I would never, ever say that this is a bad film. 
but the actual emotional experience of it is so difficult. Um, I'm sure, listen, I'm sure there are people who love this movie top to bottom. I'm sure there are people we know who love this movie top to bottom. I'm just not one of them. Um, we end our um, matinee cast reviews with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, uh, you would. Um, uh, Bob, I didn't really prep you for this, but you know this drill. Um, what would you take away from Charlie Kaufman's I'm thinking of ending things, if you could take any one thing? But I'll settle on, on, on two things. One, one is the uh, her ongoing descent down the stairs, hmm. where the camera doesn't move and she just keeps coming back into frame from upstairs and going down and then coming back into frame and just everything that she kind of relates there about um, this is what he wants me to be. I, I think is almost the crux of that part of the film. It, it really does kind of say I'm, I'm the, uh, I, I'm an imagination to him. You know, I, physically I'm probably the person he saw that stuck with him, but whatever he's thinking, I'm what he wants me to be. And I think that's a really interesting way of conveying that. Uh, my souvenir is uh, far less metaphysical and far more tactile. Uh, I want her sweater, uh, that sweater that changes tones, changes colors. Um, you know, it starts orange, it gets more brown, it turns blue by the time it's done. But the thing is, it looks it, it looks like what I want right now. It looks comforting. It looks really worn. It looks like something familiar. Um, she always wears it so well, but it just it, as I said, it looks familiar. It looks warm. It looks comforting, and that is something I could feel. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Bob Turnbull, what would you give? I'm thinking of ending things on a scale of one to four. If I'm combining my admiration for what he explored with my enjoyment of that uh i'd probably say two and a half yeah uh, you know what that's that's exactly where i'm at is this movie compared to his others um is not the same it's not as well executed this movie as far as the actual reaction is concerned is not does not give me the same kind of takeaways that i that i've taken even from films this year like even in films from the perch of my couch, even in subdued movies that I've watched in the broad light of day, did not give me that same sort of emotional wallop that I was hoping for. It's not bad, but it's it's so messy and, as I said, so opaque that I just can't dig into it and get past a, like a C kind of grade. Um, hey, listen, maybe we're crazy. Maybe that you think that this is one of the best films you've seen in a long time. Maybe you hate it. Maybe you can't believe that we talked for 45 minutes about this piece of garbage. Um, let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter where I'm matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Charlie Kaufman's I'm thinking of ending things. We are not thinking of ending things. We are going to take a quick break here. Flip the record over, play the other side. We'll be right back. back he's bob turbo i'm ryan mcneil we've been talking about uh, charlie kaufman it is matinee cast 244 six months later we're back at it hurtling towards 250 we'll get there by the end of the year 
after that who the hell knows um we've been talking about charlie kaufman's i'm thinking of ending things and this is the part of the show where we go further down the spiral we suggest some further reading some other movies that we thought about while we were watching our feature film mr turnbull why don't you get us started what is a film that you thought somebody could feasibly go on to um with uh, minimal resistance after watching this uh curious curious film by mr kaufman well, first, I just want to say that you weren't recording those additional golden nuggets we, we had to talk about after we, we ended the main part. Dude, there was some gold in there. One of these days, I'll have it like an after show. I'll do like matinee cast after dark and I'll just okay. leave in what I cut out. Yeah. So for the other side, again, a number of movies sort of sort of came across in my brain. Um, Eternal Sunshine and Anomalies are the two obvious ones, I think, just from, you know, there being Kaufman movies and very much, you know, in internal movies as well as about loneliness then it kind of went to something like last year at marion bad like alain resnez movies from 1961 about kind of false and changing memories and different perspectives on things and 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 a narrative and i'll put that in quotes that's not really linear and kind of changes as you go but that's really more kind of impressionistic in many ways and then you got something mulholland drive that's you know memories as guilt uh, or, or something like Wild Strawberries, like from Bergman, um, where it's reflections on a life lived and opportunities and, and things missed and all that. And then you get into the loneliness, you know, Harold and Maude or, or Blue from the Red, White, and Blue trilogy. I was just uh, watching sorry, that Blue, the other White, day. Red. Yeah. Ah, fantastic movie. Um, or, or Christine, uh, the recent movie about a very, very lonely character, right? Uh, or, or person, really. Um, where I kind of settled, I think. <laughs> is a movie we... Are you sure? The, I think so. A uh, movie you mentioned at the top of the show is one of my previous answers, my, my sort of comfort film, uh, Magnolia. Hmm. Because that's a movie about regret uh, and, and loneliness in many ways, but kind of, for me, ends with a dash of hope uh, on several stories. So if you're going to follow up this movie, I think you want to... You know, have something in the same realm, but gives you that dash of hope at the end. I mean, I, I suppose it'd be nice to, to throw on a, a comedy, uh, a, a rom-com that's very different to really kind of bring you back to things. But if we're going to stay in that same zone, here's a really, really uh, a different view of regret, uh, a deep exploration of it. A movie that I know a lot of people really don't like. Hmm. I love. I mean... Um, I, because again, I, I think it's just balls to the wall like it, you threw everything at this yeah it's it's crazy because on the one hand i do know that um the entire character of frank tj Mackey uh 20 years ago was just something unsavory now we would look at that and be repulsed you know of this guy who leads seminars teaching men how to seduce women because, Hey, now it's 2020 and that's a thing. You know, I'm sure in some way, shape or form in 1999, that was a thing, but now it's really a thing. And now it's really, really gross. Even though like, sorry, let me rephrase that. It was always gross. Now it's especially <laughs> so because we understand just how prevalent it is, just how many men subscribe to this kind of line of thinking. So, having this character central in your movie you know he's not the core of the movie i'd say that claudia is the core of that movie but having frank tj Mackey as this character who we're supposed to care about in any way shape or form because we are um is going to be a harder sell 
2020 than it was in 1999. But here's what's interesting. That movie is three hours long. Um, I'm thinking of ending things, as you've said a few times, is 2.15. And the three hours of Magnolia just sales like that is a movie that i never ever feel the time um whereas you know because it's so sprawling it's so altman-esque in its way that it goes all over los angeles from claudia's apartment to the tv studio to frank's seminar to whatever the heck julianne moore is doing from moment to moment um you know to to Frank Partridge's home where he's under this hospice care, it keeps on moving. Whereas the movie that we watched is in a car, in a house, in a car. We get a little bit of air when we go into the high school, but really it's in these claustrophobic spaces for two hours and 14 minutes. Yeah. So it, it certainly opens things up. It certainly brings a whole lot more characters, a whole lot more different points of view. It at its core, I think a lot of it is about that regret and loneliness um, so I think that it's a good match from that point of view. Um, yeah. The Frank T.J. Mackey character, yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, Even at the end of that movie, I don't find it, for me, a redemptive arc for that guy. I, I don't think there's redemption possible for somebody like that. There's, at the very least, maybe an understanding of, okay, here's somebody who had a lot of, lot of pain. Okay, I, I can kind of understand, and that sucks, but they're a terrible person, even back in 1999. Um, There's an emotional journey that we go on with Frank and, and with part and with Earl yeah. Partridge, you know, like I, you're right. It's not a redemption. Like, it's not like we're, we're, we're seeing how this, you know, sleazebag pickup line, pickup artist, self-help guru has now turned the corner and will now be a better person. But we're on, we're on a journey with him for sure. Yeah. And I, I think, this is a turning point for the lives of many of the people. I think for some, there is some redemption, at least possible. Yeah. And for others, uh, it's just a okay and acceptance kind of a thing. Well, so like now you're now you're just paraphrasing a monologue at the end of the movie. So well done. Uh, I I might be. I think I probably watched this movie. <laughs> I'm pretty way sure. Too much. <laughs> well uh, done. Yeah. I, but but I, getting back to your point, actually, that that's sort of outside of, of the conversation of, of our previous movie is that th this movie just moves. I mean that the opening sequences are fantastic. And it's obviously, it's a director who is, you know, it's his third movie. He's still pretty young. He is just like, let me show you what I can do. And he's moving the camera. He's bringing all this stuff. And he's tying stuff together. And it's, ah, it's amazing. So he's showing off. But I, I love every moment of that. And then when he introduces the characters, and it is boom, 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 yeah. boom, whip pan, whip pan, zoom. Ah, oh, it's, it, 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 for me, it's, it's addictive. Uh, like watching that movie after, and I would I would recommend watching it after. Uh, I'm thinking of ending things would just lift you up after this like wade through the muck. It's all of a sudden it's you know like you're really light on your feet running around Los Angeles, uh, you know. And then yeah, you you have weird stuff that happens in this movie too because sometimes that just happens. Uh, my first movie yeah. is the one that is cited within the course of. I'm thinking of ending things just because um, I did mention, I, I did think about going to the Cassavetes woman under the influence, which I watched in my last lap of the blind spot series. Cause I had never seen uh, the, the 1974 film with Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk. I don't think I've seen a lot of Cassavetes to be entirely honest. I, I haven't seen a ton either. I've seen, 
I don't know, four or five, I guess. No. I, there, there's plenty more. He's somebody, that, again, that I, I probably admire more than I really, really enjoy because of what the, the environment he creates for his actors yeah. is, I think, fascinating. Looking down his filmography, I really haven't seen anything else that he's done. I know he's meant like he's seen as this hyper realistic, very, very, um, you know, fly on the wall type director. Um, I I think one thing that's interesting in terms of a comparison is neither Woman Under the Influence nor, uh, as, as we got into, neither Influence nor... I'm thinking of ending things is really what I call an enjoyable experience, but they do things with the medium that it can do. Like a woman (laughs) under the influence certainly builds empathy for what Gina Rollins is going through. It certainly makes us feel various emotions, even if those emotions are unpleasant and I want to leave the room the same way. Sometimes we want to get out of that car. Um, And it is, evoked in I'm thinking of ending things instead of straight up lifted or paralleled. You know, we talked about uh, Magnolia a moment ago and Magnolia in a lot of ways is a direct lift of shortcut. So at the very least, when Kaufman cites another movie, he cites it in a way that's, you know, within the ecosystem of his movie. Um, whereas, you know, something like Magnolia is a scrambled version of another movie. So one under the influence, I remember really, really appreciating it and really, really being hit hard by what it did, even if I didn't necessarily enjoy what Cassavetes was trying to do with it. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I mean, and that sort of gets back to, you know, even what Pauline Cahill said about Gina Rowland's performance. And boy, oh boy, I, I'm not one to criticize her performance because it is full bore. But she does so much in it that it's it's exhausting. Um, and even uh, Jesse Buckley does a few of those mannerisms at one point in the movie. I think just after you know being the Jesse Buck uh, the uh, sorry the Pauline Kale character, she mm-hmm. does that kind of you know sounds and, and mannerisms a little bit. Uh, that that too is is really tiring when you're watching a woman under the influence. I, I find, but there is a ton of empathy in that movie, um, and and that's one thing I'll, I will give it credit absolutely until the cows come home that the empathy for her character is huge in that movie definitely what else did you have in mind after i'm thinking of ending things you know if we want to dive into one that i could talk about for days weeks months or years it it will be eternal sunshine um a movie that takes place for a big part of its running time in the character's head yeah but in in a very different way obviously right In, in unspooling his memories uh in in his view of things and which memories he wants to keep and which ones he regrets uh, and just the whole ball of wax of like what makes up, you know, a a life, uh, who you are. And uh, it will forever remain one of my favorite movies for a variety of reasons, one of which is Kate Winslet, (laughs) Uh, but not just because of Kate Winslet, but because of the character she portrays. Uh, I did consider that character, by the way, as somebody who I'd like to date, but it would probably be a fairly short-lived date, I think. Uh, but it, it'd be fun. It'd be fun for a bit. I mean, I, I don't know if we've ever really talked at length, you know, 244 episodes in. I don't know if we've ever really talked at length about Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind. Sorry, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind on this show. <laughs> I, do, I do that all the time. Yep. I name my dog after the damn thing. Yep. I started calling it movie that. Yeah, I don't know if we've ever talked about it at length. But the one thing I will say about that movie as compared to ending things is that movie, at the very least, there is so much love in that movie, you know, and even, 
even love that's at its end, you can still see the brushstrokes of the love that was there, um, you know, between Joel and Clementine. You can see it in some of the ancillary characters like Tom Wilkinson and the way he talks to Kirsten Dunst, certainly the way that she talks to him. Um, you can, and you can even see misguided love the way that, um, Elijah Wood uh, is is talking and relating to Clementine in that movie, but but there's a lot of really really true love being expressed in that movie, and and how that love has sometimes led to just manifest pain. Um, that was what I felt was one of the things deeply deeply absent in I'm thinking of ending things was I really didn't feel a whole lot of love. I know that's part of the point, but. It's so strange to see these two stories take place, you know, very much in the mind, very much in the mind of the male, and one be chock-a-block full of love and the other one have it almost completely absent. That's a good point. That, that's why it would be a good companion piece because it, it is one of the most romantic movies I've ever seen, um, particularly the way it ends where they agree that, yeah, we're just going to go through all this pain again. Okay. Yeah. Because there's so much that's still worthwhile yeah. in that relationship between the two of them. Uh, and I find that a, a truly romantic uh, um, concept. Uh, as much as that find the final frames of that movie are so bittersweet where you know they're playing in the snow and then it kind of repeats and then it repeats again. And you're like, oh no, they're going to go through this over and over and over again. Uh, but in many ways that's 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 such a perfect ending to that movie as well there are precious few more romantic notions than no i don't want to forget you you know when you think about the people who have messed you up the most and you know the the, the relationships the be they romantic be they professional whatever the people who have affected you the most for the negative the thing you want the most is to forget them and move on. And sometimes it is the hardest thing to do. So there is no more loving thing I can possibly think of than I do not want to forget you ever. Spot on, sir. There we go. Um, my other, uh, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to a weird direction with this, but I, I, I have to really, cause it was the one thing in this movie that I really did not expect. So my other, um, other side selection for I'm thinking of ending things goes back to 2001. It's a mo- It's an Oscar winning movie by Ron Howard. It's a beautiful mind starring Russell Crowe, Ed Harris, Jennifer Conley, uh, Paul Bettany. Um, it is the, uh, you know, it's, it's the story of, John Nash, who uh, won a Nobel Prize for his mathematics equation that uh, changed the way a lot of things are done. Best Picture winner of 2001 uh, against a really stacked class. And if you don't believe me, look it up. There was once upon a time where I really, really liked this movie. And I think I was even cheering for it to win in 2001. So for me, one one of the reasons why I bring it up to show it with this movie is kind of to show myself how our tastes evolve, how we change, how, you know, its growth is good. Um, I don't hate this movie. I'd never go so far as to say I dislike A Beautiful Mind. But when I compare it to a Charlie Kaufman movie, it is capital S safe which, of course, is one of the biggest critiques of movies, not just A Beautiful Mind, 
movies of its ilk, you know, is when it comes to the stories of people like John Nash, they just seem like they're playing it so damn straight to bring in as many people as possible. It's like the opposite of a Charlie Kaufman movie. They want to play to the widest possible audience. And it's, it's kind of strange to see how Hollywood continues to do that. Cause they do. It beat Gosford park. I'm sorry. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It I'm beat so Moulin, it beat Moulin Rouge. And, uh, well, the fellowship of the ring, not, not my favorite of the trilogy. Um, even in the bedroom, I would, you know, put a notch above it, but, uh, in the bedroom is fine. fantastic. Like that's, that's a movie made by adults for adults. And that is a very, very low simmering movie. But my God, is it a great movie? Um, it, it's just weird. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not an egregious, holy shit, I can't believe they went for this. You know, there have been other years in Oscar history where it's been, holy shit, I can't believe they went for this. But it's just, you know, one, seeing it echoed in a Charlie Kaufman movie is something I did not expect. And I think that, you know, if somebody went on to this movie to see how the studio system likes to tell its stories and how that can sometimes kind of seep into the mind of somebody like the lead character in... Uh, I'm thinking of ending things. It's a, it would be a really radical shift of a double feature. Well, I mean, the the one thing that I can appreciate about a beautiful mind uh, is that John Nash, and I believe I'm correct in saying this, invented game theory, yeah. which you can potentially apply to a certain extent to, I'm thinking of ending things in, in the no win scenario or no obvious kind of choice scenario. For things and, and I don't have a full understanding of game theory because it goes down some really weird corridors for sure. Uh, but any movie that can at least praise or talk about somebody that could come up with that kind of idea, bring it on, man. I'll, I'll, I'll give you credit for at least acknowledging somebody who's got that kind of weird insight, even I, if it's a you know straight up biopic kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, like I guess what it is is I look at a movie like this and I think you know if you want to talk about a movie about a mathematician. You could look at something like Pi and how that approaches it differently. If you want to talk about a movie about schizophrenia, there's all kinds of movies that do it, you know, better than this movie does. Um, it's, I mean, this movie's handsome uh, because Ron Howard assembles a great team. It's got some amazing talent within it: Russell Crowe, Ed Harris, Jennifer Connelly, Paul Bettany. Even you know, like when you go on and on down to people like. Anthony Rapp, Christopher Plummer, Josh Lucas, Judd Hirsch. You know, Judd Hirsch is in this movie for all of about 10 seconds. You know, they all jump in because it's a Ron Howard movie and they think it's prestige. That is one thing I got to admit that Kaufman is doing really well is when Kaufman makes a movie, people really seem to line up to make his movies. So, you know, he gets people like... Um, Phil Seymour Hoffman for Synecdoche, New York. He gets people like Jim Carrey for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's 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 a cool thing to see actors go for material. The two movies played back to back would be really interesting because one, you would see what kind of movies are informing Jake as a as a character and as a young man. Uh, you would certainly kind of get the the joke that this movie plays in its final act. And you'd see kind of the, the different ways that, that these filmmakers are approaching telling their stories. And, 
you know, make up for your own mind whether you prefer something that is very, very safe um, and, and certainly very pleasing or something that is not entirely pleasing, but at the very least will leave you with things to, to mull on. That is episode 244 of the Matinee Cast. Thank you for joining me as I try to shake off the rust of um, both six months of no full podcast and one month away from podcasting in general. Come on back on Monday, October 19th for episode 245. We're going to be discussing the trial of the Chicago 7. Bob is still on Twitter sometimes arguing with people. Uh, if people want to follow you, where can they find you? At The Logical Mind. I'm kind of making a concerted effort to try and get back into things just because, you know, <laughs> socialization is a is not a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just every time I think about going on Twitter, it's like, oh, God, there's really, do I really want to do this? There's a reason why I mostly post songs and books, buddy. But uh, that's where you yeah, can find yeah. Bob. But and hey, there's good people out there. There this are is true. good people out there, this and is, I want to keep interacting with them. Yes, this is very, very true. My site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Blueberry, Apple's uh, shenanigans. I'm working on getting them on Audible, Amazon, so look out for that. Um, if there's any platform that uh, you use that my show is not on, let me know, and I will put it there, because everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop feedback on i'm thinking of ending things or any of the movies we talked about today can be left in the comment section of the site you can email me ryan at the matinee.ca twitter uh, i am matinee underscore ca or facebook.com of course slash dark matinee bob any final thoughts buddy man it was really good talking to you dude i mean we, we've talked a few times over the last x number of months but uh it was good having a longer chat really enjoyed it no kidding man I'm, I'm hoping that the next time i get you on this show that it's in person um because i'm starting to miss people man i'm really really starting to miss people uh but for now for bob i'm ryan we will see you at the matinee